0: Today we come to the last sutta <laughs> in the Bhajimunikaya. This is sutra number 152, the Indriya Bhavana Sutra, which means the development of the faculties, that is the sense faculties. Okay, in this Sutta. The Sutta opens when a certain young Brahmin student, who was a disciple of some famous Brahmin named Parasarya, comes to the Buddha and exchanges greetings with him. And then the Buddha asks this young student, Brahmin student, how his master teaches his disciples. In, about the development of the faculties, Indriya Bhavana. It seems this must have been an expression that was used amongst the circles of ascetics in the time of the Buddha. And each master would develop his own way, his own special method of training and developing the faculties, the sense faculties. And so first the Buddha asks this Brahmin student whether his master teaches them the development of the faculties. And the student says that he does. Then the Buddha says, how does he teach his disciples the development of the faculties? Then the Brahmin student says, according to his teacher, one should not see any forms with the eye, and one should not hear any sounds with the ear. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mention that one shouldn't smell any sense with the, no- with the nose, that one shouldn't um, taste any flavors with the tongue, or feel any tactile objects with the body. Those are the other five physical sense faculties. But with the eye, I guess one could always keep the eyes closed or downcast, and if one wants to practice very diligently restraint of the faculties, then one one can stuff one's ears with wax or some kind of substance to prevent sounds from coming in. So apparently, this master, this Brahman master, thought that the only way to overcome the desire and aversion that arise through the senses is by completely closing off the senses, so that they don't have any access to their objects. In a way, this kind of practice is somewhat related, perhaps, to the practice of self-mortification. It's a kind of, it works on the presupposition that as long as we are exposed to sense objects, then we are inevitably, we inevitably become their prisoners. That the only way we can escape attachment to sense objects, the only way we can avoid the dualistic reactions of attraction and repulsion, interest and diversion is by blocking off entirely the access to sense objects. If one really were to take this mode of practice far enough, then one should even find a way to block the nostrils so that no smells come in, (laughs) and one should, one has to eat, but one should eat only the most bland, the blandest, those tasteless foods, and one should even try to insulate the body so that one doesn't touch any material objects. Of course there's a sixth sense also, the mind faculty which has its own objects, and perhaps the ascetics who follow this mode of practice would try to enter into a state of meditative absorption in which the mind is completely cut off from any experience and just enters into a complete blank, thoughtless state of mind. Okay, so when the Brahmin student gives his reply to the Buddha, then the Buddha says that if this is the case then a blind man and a deaf man would have well-developed faculties they would have mastery (laughs) over the sense faculties for a blind man doesn't see any forms with the eyes and the deaf man doesn't hear any sounds with the ears and the Buddha might have gone on to mention that the most highly developed person would be the one who is blind and deaf together, since that person doesn't see and doesn't hear. Okay, when the Buddha gave that reply, then the Brahmin student must have realized that in a way he was stumped. He probably gave his reply thinking that the Buddha would praise him or praise his master and say, "You're." Master is teaching the correct way. <laughs> I teach exactly the same thing. But the Buddha didn't agree with the reply of his teaching. Did you want to add anything? To that? Yeah, mean that, uh,
1: anyway, it is, as our doctor will know, you can put box and box and wax in your ear, you will still here when the ear is in it will only, uh, what is that called, uh, muffle, muffle your soul. But you cannot away that. That is already there. It is in the mechanism
0: already wrong. Huh? Yeah, I should mention that there are techniques that have developed now, techniques of complete sensory deprivation. I think there are even sensory, what they call sensory deprivation tanks, huh? where one goes in and Literally, one doesn't see anything with, with absolutely no sense experience, all the sense experiences at all. Uh-huh. The no
1: sound sense. is still there, and it's the sound of your heartbeat, and it's the sound of your bloodstream, and all that. Mm. And There is a deprivation of what we usually are. Mm.
0: But then when people undergo complete sensory deprivation, if they don't have prior mind training, then the mind starts conjuring up all sorts of fantasies. Oh, fear. And fear also.
1: Terrible fear, you know. You can be, uh, without preparation, there can be a terrible kind of fear, you know. Because you are losing something which you are so used to.
0: Okay, so when the Buddha gave his answer, then this young Brahmin student sat there. Unable to reply, he was completely, you say, baffled by the movement, completely dejected. Okay. Then the Buddha, in order to give a kind of cue to Ananda, indicating that he wants to give an explanation, to give a discourse, he says to Ananda that the Brahmin Parasarya teaches his disciples one type of development of the faculties, but in the Arya Vinaya, the discipline of the Noble Ones, the supreme development of the faculties is different. Then when he says this, then Venable Ananda pleads with him, Now is the time, Blessed One, now is the time for the Blessed One to teach the supreme development of the faculties in the discipline of the Noble One. Okay, so now the Buddha starts to teach, and he will teach three stages in the development of the sense faculties, three ways to master the sense faculties, three levels in the mastery of the sense faculties. Usually when the Buddha speaks about mastering the sense faculties, he uses a particular fixed formula which comes in the Pali Canon. This is the formula on the restraint of the senses. This formula says that when the monk sees a form with the eye, then he does not become Attracted to, then he restrains the faculty of the eye. <laughs> okay, on seeing right, of course, on seeing a form with the eye, he does not grasp at its sign and features. That is the general characteristic of this of the form, or its particular detailed features since if he left the I faculty unguarded, then such evil unwholesome states as greed and aversion might overcome him. He practices the way of its restraint, he guards the I faculty, and he undertakes the restraint of the I faculty. That is the usual formula which indicates the training that is to be taken up by a monk at the very beginning of his practice, before he reaches the higher stages. But here, in this sutta, the Buddha doesn't introduce that method, because that method is a more elementary method, which is meant for monks at the beginning of their training. Here the Buddha is going to use a method that applies vipassana, or insight to the sensory experience in order to overcome any kind of defilement, any kind of attachment that might arise, and to develop a state of equanimity towards the sensory experience. Okay, so now the Buddha gives his explanation. Okay, when a monk sees a form with the eye, there arises in him what is agreeable. There arises what is disagreeable. There arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. I'll write the Pali words. Okay, the word for agreeable is manapa, the word for dis- disagreeable, a manapa. And what is agreeable and disagreeable, that is manapa and a manapa. I think you have this word in singular also, too. Okay, so it's immediately clear. Yeah. Now, normally in the suttas, this word agreeable and disagreeable, these words agreeable and disagreeable are used to qualify the object of perception. So the texts speak of agreeable forms, disagreeable forms, and so on. But here, I have to say the commentary is not helpful at all on this. It seems that what is meant by agreeable, disagreeable, and agreeable and disagreeable, are the reactions to the sense object, the states of mind that arise on the occasion of perception. So here when it's said that something agreeable arises, what seems to be meant is some kind of liking for a particular sense object, some interest in it, some desire for it, some degree even of lust for it and naturally, desire, liking, attachment will arise in response to a pleasant sense object. So that is not necessarily the case. Some people enjoy undergoing pain. <laughs> and what is, seems to be meant by what is disagreeable here is not exclusively a disagreeable object, but some dislike the object, some aversion, some antagonism towards the object. Generally the aversion and antagonism that will arise towards an unpleasant object, a disagreeable object, but again it's not necessarily the case. Some people can become averse even towards a beautiful or disagreeable object. And then, what is both agreeable and disagreeable, that seems to be perhaps some kind of mixed reaction to an object, something sometimes feeling some degree of liking, sometimes a degree of dislike, or it can also be the neutral state of dull equanimity, not the bright, um, sublime equanimity of true detachment. Or rather the dull equanimity of just being indifferent towards some neutral object. Okay, now in this case, the Buddha explains how the monk responds on such occasions. And here it's not a matter of the monk drawing back the sense faculty from the object as in the training that's given to the monks in the early stages. But rather, the monk is is instructed to apply a particular type of contemplation to the sense object and to his reaction to the object in order to dispel that reaction, to change the reaction, from one of attachment, aversion, or dullness, to one of true equanimity. And so what the meditator does is to consider the inner experience, that inner reaction of liking, disliking, or indifference. And he also can apply the same Character of the same method to the object. Consider, he considers that this experience is something conditioned. Okay, the experience of liking, of desire, for example, is conditioned by the sense faculty. It's conditioned by the object. So it's not something absolute, something existing in itself, and it's also conditioned by many internal factors, one's own prior experiences. For example, say, (laughs) okay, maybe for some people who have lived for a long time in South Asia, then if they go to America (laughs) and they see, say, men who have grown, up in South Asia, if they go to America and they see American women for the first time, (laughs) they think that, oh, they're all ugly (laughs) because their prior conditioning is to enjoy South Asian feminine features. (laughs) And so if they go to another country in the West, then all the women (laughs) look ugly (laughs) because they have European features. I remember many years ago, when, <laughs> when I was in graduate school, there was a Tibetan monk who came to live <laughs> in the town where I went to school. Tibetan Buddhist monk. Then he told his foster, his adopted parents, the parents who adopted him, <laughs> that he thought that all the American women were homely. He said, how can men like women with such white skins and light colored hair? <laughs> but then what I heard several years later <laughs> was that he had disrobed and married one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But you have also to say that homely in American language means a different thing than homely in English. Mm -hmm. Homely in the English in in Britain means, nice, she is worthy, but in America it is a developed person kind of, Okay, so in that way
0: one is conditioned by sight. Or, okay, somebody who is maybe grown up, will take the opposite way, listening to Western classical music, then maybe when they hear Indian raga, Indian classical music, the ragas, then it just sounds like cacophony to them. But if one gets used to listening, then, then one learns the structure of the music, then one can appreciate it. And then, not to speak of music, but people come from Europe, the West, come to Sri Lanka, India, and eat the Sri Lankan food, Indian food, and it's just burning the (laughs) mouth. And all they can taste are the spices and the chili. But after some time, one gets used to it, and then one can enjoy it and develop attachments to this type of food. So in this way, one's likings, dislikings, are based also on internal conditioning. Okay, then one considers that this experience, this conditionally arisen experience, because it's conditioned, it's something gross. It's gross also because it's arising through the senses. It's dependent upon the eye and forms, the ear and sound. And especially for a meditator who has experienced much more refined and exalted inner states of perhaps the jhanas, the insight knowledges, then this sensory experience, whether pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is something which is gross and for that reason to be something to become detached from. And it is also dependently arisen, arisen through causes and conditions. And so by contemplating the sensory experience in this way, by contemplating the reaction to it in this way, as conditioned by various factors, as gross because it's sensory. And is dependently arisen, then one sub- has subjected it to the basic framework for insight knowledge. And in fact, when one applies this particular mode of contemplation to relax at the experience in this way, then one will also see that it is impermanent because it's conditioned, arisen through different causal factors. When those conditioning factors subside, the experience subsides. So it's impermanent. What's impermanent is unsatisfactory or suffering. What is impermanent, suffering, subject to change, not mine, not I, not myself. So it's anatta, non self Then one compares this experience with the inner experience of equanimity, an equanimity that one has known previously through one's experience in meditation, and so one realizes that this is much more peaceful, this is a much more exalted and refined state, the equanimity. And then when when one reflects on the experience in this way, then the agreeable that arose, that is the liking, the attachment to the object, the disagreeable that arose, the disliking, the aversion, the repugnance towards the object, and the mixture of both, the combination of liking and disliking. These states pass from him and equanimity becomes established. According to the sub-commentary to the Machimunikaya, this equanimity is what is called Sankarupeka, that is the equanimity towards formation. It's not just the ordinary neutral state of equanimity, But the meditator here, by applying this particular framework of contemplation to the object, has set up a foundation for insight knowledge. And through that insight knowledge, seeing the true nature of the phenomena, he develops the equanimity towards formations that arises from insight. Okay, then the Buddha illustrates this with one of his remarkable similes. He says that just as a man with good sight could, when his eyes are open, he might shut them, but when his eyes are, are shut, he might open them. Just very simple, something very simple to do, something that he can do immediately as soon as he thinks of it. So, concerning anything at all, the Buddha says, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, sees just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This simile, and the the, the way the Buddha develops it, this seems to indicate that the monk who is practicing in this way is one who is really quite already quite well established in his meditation. Because he's able to shift the mind away from that defiled mental state into the pure equanimity, almost just by an act of will. Well, just by setting up that framework of contemplation. Then the Buddha says, This is called, in the Noble One's discipline, the supreme development of the faculties in regard to forms cognizable by the eye. Okay, now the Buddha goes to each of the other sense faculties, and the pattern of contemplation is the same in each case. The only thing that differs are the similes. In regard to the sounds heard through the ear, the Buddha gives a simile of just as a strong man, or any any man in fact, could very easily just snap his fingers. So concerning anything at all, one can develop this restraint of the faculties in regard to any sounds. In regard to odors that one might smell through the nose, the simile is that of raindrops on a lotus leaf, a slanting lotus leaf. When the raindrops hit the lotus leaf, they immediately roll off without sticking to it. And so these states of liking, disliking and the mixture of both, as soon as the monk sets up this contemplation, they immediately roll off and equanimity is established. In the case of taste or flavors that one will taste through the tongue, the simile is that of a strong man who could spit out a ball of spit from the tip of his tongue, just tip, and the spit is out, there's no problem. And so, in the same way, he'll the relating monk will spit out the liking, disliking, and the mixture of both, and return to equanimity. In the case of tactile objects, it is just as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm so the meditating monk can change his mind from the liking and disliking to equanimity. Then, in regard to mental objects cognized by thought, the simile is like two or three drops of water that might fall onto a plate, an iron plate, which has been heated all day. It's red hot. The drops might fall a little slowly onto the plate, but as soon as they hit the plate, they immediately vaporize and turn into steam. And so as soon as When the states of liking and disliking arise in the mind, they might persist for a few seconds, just like the water falling down onto the plate. But as soon as the monk becomes aware of his state of mind and contemplates this is conditioned, gross, dependently arisen, impermanent, suffering, not-self, equanimity is peaceful and sublime then immediately it's like those thoughts of liking and disliking are hitting the hot plate and turning into steam nothing is left okay so that is called the supreme development of the faculties regarding ideas cognizable the mind Recognizable by the mind in the noble one's discipline. And that the Buddha says, that is how there is the supreme development of the faculties in the noble one's discipline. So this is not the ordinary restraint of the sense faculties, but this is the supreme development of the faculties by the monk or the meditator who's advanced in the practice of vipassana and is able to use the insight meditation as a kind of tool for knocking away these defilements whenever they arise or he uses them as a kind of framework for understanding these defilemental states and then for expelling them as soon as they arise
1: Do you want to? uh, Yes, maybe I'm coming back to the word manapa and amanapa. As a simile from the medical field, it is probable that uh, a man who is prone to kidney stones also likes tomatoes and oranges. But the tomatoes and the oranges don't like him. That is how I understand agreeable and disagreeable. And he knows. When he knows, he can develop that particular equanimity which is necessary for a patient to not be bothered about not eating tomatoes and not eating oranges because they are built of fitness forms. That is a, a simile which I would introduce. this a like different meaning of the Manapa agreeable and disagreeable, mm. because here I think uh, it is very much connected to knowledge behind, which we call the person, mm. and therefore it is a little difference to uh, pleasant and unpleasant mm. in the ordinary sense.
0: In the sense of saying that this doesn't agree with me.
1: Yes, it doesn't agree. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, you can say I like it, but it doesn't
0: like me. No? Mm-hmm. Okay, but now this method of by which the Buddha explains the development of the faculties, it seems from what follows, is intended for a monk who is still in the stage of technically the stage of tutujana, one who is still. A whirling and that he hasn't yet reached any of the paths or fruits, not even the stage of stream entry. Because now the Buddha in the next passage will show the way of training the sense faculties for a disciple and higher training, one who is entered upon the path, entered upon the way the definite way to liberation. This will be a disciple who is at the stage of stream-entera, once-returner, non-returner, or who has entered on the definite paths leading to those groups. Okay, here, Ananda, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye, hears a sound with the ear, smells an odor with the nose, and so on, There arises in him what is agreeable, some liking. There arises what is disagreeable, some dislike. There arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable, some mixture or combination of the two. Then he is ashamed, or actually humiliated, ashamed and disgusted by the agreeable that arose by the disagreeable that arose and by the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose. That is how one is a disciple in higher training, one who is entered upon the way. I have to admit that I find this a little bit obscure because it seems to me (laughs) that in the previous passage the ability to withdraw from the sense state and to go very quickly into a state of equanimity seems to me to be like a higher response than that of having this humiliation, shame and disgust towards the sense object. So I have to admit, I can't completely figure this out. The only thing I could think of is that perhaps the Disciple in higher training is considered to have developed such a well controlled, well disciplined mind that when his mind gives way to some kind of liking, disliking, and so on, it's something that he feels ashamed of.
1: It's
0: actually a verb based on. The verbs, let me see, it's atiti which is like repelled by, harayati, which is a verb related to hiri, being ashamed of, and disgusted. jay it's not quite the same as otapa, but one of the verbs is related to hiri, so what he feels is hiri, otapa is implied, because this is some kind of inner sense of repulsion at these thoughts. So, anyway, that is my conjecture. Perhaps, Benevol Sumater, you want
1: Maybe this kind is also a fine advice to get certain disgust which is necessary to counter it for the disgust, or the disgust only as a tool to remove that kind of uh, burden, to dwell with this kind of momentary attachment. And fixation on such an uh, attractive or an attractive button. Because always we find in the text make your disgust strong as a weapon, as a That's the Nidhita is the word. Yeah yeah, yeah is a uh turning away from these objects.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. and that helps of yeah. course yeah, to, to use a little strong images to get rid of the greed for these or that.
0: Mm. Okay, now in the final section, the Buddha is going to show the Arahant, the liberated one. And he does so by using the expression, a noble one with developed faculties. That is the Pali expression is Ario Avidyindriyo, that is one who is fully completed the development of the faculties. Okay, first I'll read the text. Okay, here, Ananda, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye and so on, there arises in him what is agreeable. There arises what is disagreeable. There arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. Now. It seems here that these words, agreeable, disagreeable, and so on, undergo a little shift in meaning. (laughs) That's the only way I can make sense of the passage. Because for the Arahant there cannot be any liking and disliking towards sense objects. There cannot be any attachment or aversion. So here I would take it that... the. Manapa, a manapa, and both. The manapa must refer to the agreeable sense object, pleasant sense object, the disagreeable to a disagreeable sense object, and to what is both to some object which is indifferent or some which has both pleasant and agreeable and disagreeable features. Okay, but now the Arahant is able to practice a particular type of mastery towards his experience, which elsewhere is called the five types of arya Ithi, the five types of magical power of the Noble Ones. Okay, first, if he should wish, May I abide perceiving the unrepulsive and the repulsive. Then he abides perceiving the unrepulsive and the repulsive. Okay, this means that if he sees some kind of disagreeable object, something which is ugly, Or something which is threatening, for example, a person who is disagreeable to him, then he is able to perceive that object or that person as unrepulsive. He doesn't feel any aversion, any repugnance towards that object. And the commentary explains that If this is a disagreeable person, a repulsive person, somebody who is trying to harm them, or somebody that we consider generally an enemy, the way one overcomes that feeling of repulsion is through developing metta-loving kindness. Or else by considering this person simply in terms of the elements. This person is just a combination of the four great elements or the 18 sensory elements or a combination of the five aggregates. So there's no true self there, no real person to be angry with or who is disagreeable to you. And if it's a disagreeable object, something ugly or threatening an object, then one can just contemplate the object by way of elements, just impersonal elements. So for example, if somebody comes and attacks you with weapons, then one considers that these weapons are just material elements hitting this body, which is made up of material elements. If somebody abuses you with angry words, then you think the words are just sounds, vibrations in the air hitting the ear faculty. In this way, aversion subsides and the object loses its repulsive quality. Okay, if he sh- wishes. May I abide perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive? Then he abides. Here, the unrepulsive is actually taken to be the attractive, and usually it's explained in the way of an attractive object of the opposite sex. So, if one sees a sexually attractive person, and then desire tends to arise, though it doesn't arise for the Arhat but this is for somebody at the lower stage of development. Then one will contemplate this beautiful, wonderful, attractive person, is what am I actually seeing? Just a physical body. What is that physical body? Just a combination, it's a bag of skin (laughs) covered by the hairs of the head, bodily hairs, one opens the skin, Around the skin there are the fingernails, the teeth. Um, Inside the skin there is just muscle, nerves, bones, bone marrow, various organs, (laughs) all of it subject to old age, sickness, death. So what is there beautiful to be attracted to? In that way what is unrepulsive or attractive becomes repulsive. or if there's some beautiful but inanimate sense object, even, say, beautiful, delightful tastes, delicious tastes, then to overcome the craving for the taste, then one just turns the taste into an impersonal element. It's just the taste element, something arising through conditions, passing away, that way there's no special attachment to the taste. If one hears beautiful music then one could just revert to a frame of mind in which the music turns just into notes, individual notes, which are sounds. (laughs) Then the music loses the melody, loses the harmony, and just becomes a flow of sounds, disconnected sounds. Okay then, to abide perceiving the repulsive, the third method, one abides perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive. That way is the same as method number one, but now one is considering both, both the repulsive and the unrepulsive as being unrepulsive. That is, one takes repulsive forms, unrepulsive forms, both, both repulsive and attractive forms, and one considers them both as being unrepulsive, because one considers them just as impersonal elements, as forms, feel as forms arising and passing away. And so one loses both the attraction and the repulsion. And similarly, method number four, one perceives both the unrepulsive and the repulsive as repulsive. One considers all physical bodies as just being combinations of the 32 parts, and all inanimate objects as being just impersonal elements. Okay, then the fifth, if he should wish, may I avoid both the repulsive and the unrepulsive, and may I avoid both the repulsive and the unrepulsive, and abide in equanimity, mindful and fully aware, then just by making that determination, he can withdraw his mind completely from the object, and from the object's features, and immediately, equanimity is set up with mindfulness and clear comprehension. So that is how one is a noble one with developed faculties. Did you want to add
1: anything? Yeah, here in we are in fact in the middle of the real magic. And when we think about uh, the master of it, Muhammad Alana, he was a master of these things, especially because of his tremendous speed of change in his attitude towards those things. So here we can see if we can see something which is very ugly, then we see the beauty in us by having compassion to that labour man or that ugly person. On one side, and we gain. When we go stronger and stronger, we can see that the result of such exchanges are always the highest mental states possible to make up, and that is the, the, the magic to see the things and also to teach the things, even in the Arhats. He was not caught by the beauty and by the ugly in that grave, but he could definitely see what is understood as ugly and what is understood as beautiful. And therefore, he could easily teach someone who was caught by his own beauty that there is over another side by aniksha that that beauty will fade away. So here, this is in fact uh, the, the, the mechanism, uh, the, the, the data on which one builds up the attitude to the global that The
0: data.
1: The data is uh, pleasant, as a, uh, beautiful and ugly. No? Data. 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 Data.
0: data.
1: data. 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 Yeah. Yeah. data yeah.
0: Okay, so now the Buddha (laughs) sums up the discourse, he says, So, Ananda, the supreme development of the faculties and the noble ones' discipline has been taught by me. That is, in the first sections of the Sutta. Then the way of the disciple in higher training who has entered upon the path, that has been taught by me and then the Noble One with developed faculties, that is the practice of the Arahant, that has been taught by me. So, what should be done for His disciples out of compassion by a teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them, that I have done for you, Ananda. There are the roots of trees, these empty huts, Meditate, Ananda, do not delay, or else you will regret it later. This is our instruction to you. And that is the end of the discourse. And the Venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. And at this point, we have <laughs> completed really effectively the study of the entire Machima Nikaya. Some suttas I passed over, but those are either too obvious and they don't need explanation or of less interest. So what started ten years ago, I think it was the first week of March in the year 1990, (laughs) has now come to an end in the last week of July (laughs) in the year 2000. (laughs)
1: I wish to thank my dear friend Ramabodhi Bodhi for the inspiring he has done, not only to me, I hope also to the audience. It was for me a very, very great event to be here and to listen to him and to to reflect on those things directly. So I wish to thank him again for this marvelous, wonderful work he has done. And that's steady
0: for 10 years. That's all that I have to <laughs> do. Okay, but if there's any questions based on the sutta, then. Can the world change? Can
1: we are able to change the attractive
0: object to an attractive object? Say it again. Has the world changed? <laughs> I think that the world will have changed a lot <laughs> since <laughs> since the world is really one's own it's very much conditioned by one's mind and body. So for example, one who has not taken under who has not learned the Dhamma, undertaken any training that person goes into the big city, say, and he's all eager <laughs> and everything. He sees flashing signs, neon signs, girls, dancing, drinks, <laughs> and for him that's his world. Everything is all attractive. <laughs> and saying, an Arahant is driven through the city and these signs are flashing. And he doesn't even bat an eyelash. Nothing. Uh, none of that has any meaning to him. It's just, you know, completely empty forms. <laughs> so I would say that the, the perception of the <coughs> world has changed completely. <laughs> any, any other questions? But maybe do you have wanted to say anything more in response to that? Uh, I would say that
1: uh, about the world. I think we have to start with knowing where the world really starts. Yeah, yeah. What is the world? And we have to repeat it again and again and again. What is meant by world? So I will repeat it. The world is the eye, the visual object, and the eye consciousness, or the opinion about the object, if you want. The, I- the ear, the sound, and the sound consciousness. The nose, and the smells and the smell consciousness, or the opinion about the different kinds of smells, the tongue and the saviour and the goose consciousness, the body and the tongue gibbles, and the body consciousness, the mind with base consciousness, and the ideas and mind-object-consciousness. This is the world. And it is worth to think about, not to get lost in the flashy lights of modern times. and electronic.
0: OK, so... <laughs> now we are faced with a little dilemma. <laughs> no. <laughs> wait, 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 there was one question okay. I thought. I had
1: one question because I don't um, I didn't understand how reacts reaction discussed and um shaped you to the disagree with yeah. how this can be without hatred and this is not against
0: the opportunity. It's actually it's not with hatred, not with aversion it seems but it's just through some kind of this maybe disenchantment is the word or some kind of inner... well the word that's used Pali is the word hiri, shame, the verb as I said is based on hiri, which is a wholesome mental quality, it's a virtuous mental quality, so it's not aversion with aversion, dosa, or fatiga, is an unwholesome inequality. But I have to say it does seem to come a little, that's why I said it seems to come a little bit, to my mind, it seems like a coarser state and a coarser way of practice than that of the monk who's able to quickly withdraw from that liking, disliking, and enter into equanimity just like the man who can snap his fingers, or the drop of water that's quickly dissolved. So it's a little bit of a problem to me, I'm not really able to make a clear sense clear sense out of it. Even that disenchantment that you use, it still seems like even disenchantment is a somewhat coarser state than a quick withdrawal to equanimity. <laughs> I think we should continue, but I have to think what to do next. Maybe Ben Wilson Veda would. You like to give a lecture?
1: Yeah, only once until yeah. you are uh, yeah. until you get uh, yeah. your next yeah. le- lessons. Maybe uh, preparing.
0: Yeah. I can do yeah. something in between yeah. the next time. Maybe since the Feyre Haver is coming up now, over the next few weeks, I so will stop for those few weeks. Then. After the Peyraheira, the first Thursday, maybe Benbow Sumaida will give a lecture, a talk. It doesn't have to be a formal lecture, just no, pause. no. It's
1: not a lecture. It is a kind of uh, reflection upon on symbols and signs, a kind of exercise in Buddhist study, which is useful yeah. for us to yeah. see certain things which we know from the Buddhist or. Uh, any sign and how we can respond towards it to gain a Dhamma Vitaka. nothing more. To stimulate our Dhamma Vitaka based upon whatever we can see. So from, from the leaf, the dry leaf, to the spiral, to the circle, all those things which we know And when we see it and we have an opportunity to remember these by fixing these associations together. Hey, you're giving
0: (laughs) your lecture (laughs) (laughs) already. These
1: associations together as you have it in circular. When you think about Penny, you think about Kiri. And when you think about Kiri, you think about Penny. That is what I wanted to do, to bring something. Which
0: is fixing our minds towards the Dhamma. So let me just see the count. You want to make that the 17th?
1: That's after the. That's where. Good is it. Your wish my command.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.